Om Sahana Bhavatu Sahano Bunaktu Saha Virya Viryam Karavavahai Tejasvanavati Tamastu Ma Vidvishavahai Om Shanti 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 Om may Brahman protect us all. May he nourish us all. May we work together with great energy. May our study be vigorous and fruitful. May love and harmony dwell amongst us all. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all. Well, a lovely song. <laughs> it's directional. And it captures, recaptures the whole thing that we've been going through this last week with the birth and ultimate resurrection of Christ. The, t the whole title of today's lecture, of course, is Divine Birth Through Death and Dying. What that implies, of course, is our Vedic model. This Vedic model that we all embrace is all-inclusive. It quite is adaptive. You can do everything you want with it. It's, in that sense, it's awesome. So I always love it because of its flexibility and also its generosity. We could be very generous with ourselves and open up to whatever we so wish and be inspired by whatever we so wish as individuals. So this Christmas affair that has just passed uh, speaks to some people and doesn't speak to others, and yet it is a, a very powerful medium for opening the heart, for uh, instilling love in us, for encouraging these acts of love and warmth and caring, which is very, very, very much a part of um, uh, spiritual practice because uh, mantras and all of these things are excellent and good but really th that's just the topping the surface really behind the mantra are these acts of love <coughs> these acts of generosity this sense of unity or this willingness to open out to life in a loving way that's what furthers our lives faith hope when we go through periods of confusion and then acts of love, reaching out, and we turn to these great souls. Ramakrishna is, for us, the present soul in the world, but who affirm unity, an ultimate unity, the craving of every heart. We want to be able to go through life with an open heart, uh, with a heart that responds to the world lovingly and openly, in an open way, and heals us. It not only heals the world, helps to heal the world around us, but it heals us, which is the most important thing. So keeping that heart open is part of this whole thing of divine birth, and that's what we're going to be going through today. This act of divine birth and this act of discovery going on within us, and once we recognize that's what's going on, putting two to two together, we can deliberately encourage that in our own lives, because that is the thing that opens the heart and keeps ultimately the heart open. That is that act of love, is the thing that slowly ripens our life and ripens our mind. Uh, it's always going through it, and we're going to see how these acts of love pervade everything, the whole of, of creation and the whole of evolution, that everything is attempting to reach out in little acts of love, the masculine and the feminine, reaching out and then loving. It's the two plays forces together that gives rise to personal growth. 
So let me read first a, well, let's, so that's what we're going to be speaking about, a fundamental theme and speaking on a very large level, a large version of death and dying, because that's what we're speaking of, divine birth through death and dying. A very large version of that. We usually think of, uh, of death and dying in a very small, narrow way. But what, what the Vedic version says, it's a very large and inclusive because it takes in all levels of birth uh, through death and dying, all the levels of creation. Things are birthing, and then they're going through levels of death and dying, and then they rebirth. And in this sojourn of death and dying and rebirth, 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 the divine manifests more and more in our lives. That's the whole beauty of it. So that's the Vedic model. India understood it early on, embraced it, and entertained it. Now it's taking a global manifestation. And now with Ramakrishna and Vivekananda, it has to take a global manifestation, which means we have to put it out into modernity, into the modern world, and we have to show how this process unfolds through Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Taoism, uh, 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 whatever we choose, that same process is unfolding. And that's the Vedic, as I see it, as Swami Vivekananda taught it, and Ramakrishna embodied it, this openness of heart, this willingness to love indiscriminately, indiscriminately, <laughs> with wild abandon, love. It's, very, it's a very safe way to go, step into a realm of uh, self-abandonment or a crazy abandonment. Love, it works. It changes our lives for the better. So this is the Vedic model, and it embraces all levels of creation, um, of death and dying, and then kind of resurrection or rebirth, divine birth. So uh, this divine light and its birthing, it goes on everywhere. That's our model throughout every act of dying. So one, let's go to one that's very, very obvious and comes up in all of our uh, traditions and history in our everyday lives. It's something we all reluctantly look at. We don't look at it with welcome, in a welcomed way. We rather look around it. And that is the play of, the die, the, 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 of birth and uh, death and, 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 and a divine birth within us on a very concrete, in a concrete way as we grow old and eventually we have a death experience and we're challenged by a great light and we're, we're used to, uh, then, then what we're used to, you see. We fall into the state and we have the experience of light and we'll go into it a little more deeply as we go on. And then we, we, we have the experience of light. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is a big spokesman for that. She says, death is the final stage of growth in this life. Final stage of growth in this life. There is no total death, only the body dies, the self or the spirit, or whatever you may wish to label it, it is eternal. You may interpret this in any way that makes you comfortable. Okay. So it's a very flexible system, Vedanta, and, and Kubler-Ross uh, was uh, one spokesman for this process. There's another way of death and dying, and this rebirth, this divine birth that's going on in nature, and that's in a collective crisis of a dying world. We know it with Christ here. There was a period in time when there was the collective death of society 2,000 years ago, and a light of the great prophets come in. But this happens everywhere. 
a dying and lost world, and Christ at this time gave his message for an age and then ascended back into a higher state of consciousness. And there, according to the Vedic model, he helps us. We turn to Christ in our, in our lives, and there is a community of souls and spirits and people who are on higher planes, and they can help us. And so we could gain help from that, but not because, anyway, we can gain help from that. And three, so there are three phases I'm talking about this divine birth going on in our everyday lives. This divine birth is breaking forth in our everyday lives. We're discovering Christ or Krishna or Rama or Buddha or Allah in our everyday lives. It births, it comes into our life because it's our real nature, you see. It's really our real nature. And so whether we call it Christ and we attune ourselves to higher truths through a Christ, really what bursts through behind it all is our higher nature. And that speaks to us. But we do it in and through a symbol, a person, a lifestyle. And everybody has their own lifestyle. And it's all legitimate according to our Vedic model. So this is the three, the light that shines and gives rise to all of our smaller deaths and births. We're always doing it. We have to face that every day. We wake up and we have to resurrect ourselves. We have to have that divine birth. We have to restore ourselves. We really have to. And we have, to, we have no choice. Either that or we give in and we turn away from the light and we experience misery and a sense of uh, hopelessness and whatever else we choose to indulge in. <laughs> but we needn't do it, see, that's the point. Needn't do it because that light is always there. Uh, so it, uh, it, in our daily life, it's important amidst the seeming diverse expressions of our physical life, our collective life of death and rebirth, which is with the Christ or with Krishna or whatever in a per period of history, it's the last expression of death and dying and resurrection. It's this last uh, uh, expression of everyday life that prepares us for the larger ones. It's what we're doing here today that puts us in tune with the divine, with Christ, with Krishna, and, uh, and makes us open and responsive and frees us up little by little and gives us a sense of inner strength, which is awesome. Strength is a wonderful, 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 wonderful thing. <laughs> Can't say enough about it. Peace, love, and freedom. A peaceful, loving mind is a wonderful, wonderful resource for just living your life and going out into the world, turning to God when there's failure, turning to God or truth when the world turns on you and cheats you and lies and everything, and coming back and having to restore ourselves again and again. Okay? And that's the Vedic model. It's the model of all religions. But the Vedic model gives us this enormous flexibility. So it's in our everyday life that is, is, is important. Gradually we assimilate the larger light. So when our body drops off, we're, we're, we're ready for it to a large degree. Or if the great prophets, not only the great prophets that descend into our dying world with light, but it comes to all of us, you see. It comes to all of us. And Christ might speak of one expression of it, but it's there always, and it, it bursts into consciousness because it's the Atman, it's the soul. It's our higher nature that really is awakening, in flooding, infilling our lives.
That's what's happening. So the physical world, let's look at the physical world and see what happens to us briefly. Look at the first experience of death and dying and this emergence of the divine uh, in it, in and through it. It's one that we all face. We grow old and we die physically. We've got to do it. One of our, uh, uh, John Dobson is going through that right now, interestingly. Uh, he's passing through this stage of dying. He was a giant of a man. We did great accomplishments in the world. He's been with us for some time. We all love him. A brilliant mind, and yet he's now, his mind is still lucid, but his body is giving way. See? So it just happens to all of us. And uh, so that's the first one we have to look at. And youth, our bodies are fresh and young. John Dobson was a vigorous man. I could talk about myself or any one of us. We were all vigorous and young. And as we get older, that vigor goes. And all of our ideals uh, in the world kind of slowly pass away. But really, it's the divine, it's the spiritual part of it that makes sense to us as we get older and older. More and more, we begin to see through it all. That's the thing with age. Energy and vitality goes, and eventually we welcome death. Okay, you know, okay, it's, it's, I've had, lived a life, and I've done a lot of things, but we have to at the moment of death, too. And I just saw John a little while ago, and I said, John, because we tend to get into negativity. But there is a quote from one of the Upanishads that says, there was a man dying, and he said, remember, O oh mine, remember all the great things I have done. All the wonderful things you have done, we have done accomplished in this world. Don't go out of the world, oh mine, in negativity. Be positive in, your, in this dying experience because you, you're going to go on living, so be positive. Think of all the good and great things you've done and bring that into consciousness as you die. So this is one of the things that, uh, that we have to uh, uh, welcome. Swami Badrananda comes to mind. He was one of our monks too. And at the end, I saw him when I walked into his room, and there was a holy presence in there. He was an Englishman, and he was a devotee of Vedanta, a monk, and had been with Swami Prabhavananda. And when he died, he, he fell into a, a beautiful state. And the dying process, he fell into a beautiful state. I felt, felt it with Swami Swananda especially, enormous magnitude of presence there in the dying process. Here his body was all messed up, and he was just living on a um, respirator. There he was. And he lived a vital, I'd seen him in Berkeley when he was living his life, a very vital, strong life. He had made huge contributions, and he had that steady strength about him. There he was, but as I passed before him in, in, in the, in the uh, hospital, and I stood beneath his bed, I felt an enormous peace, a profound peace. Nowhere else in the room. I had to stand below the bed at his feet, and there was a profound peace that came there. I said, my goodness, this man is in a very profound place. He's stepped into a realm that's very deep and very holy. Very deep, very holy. But the moment I stepped away, it vanished. <laughs> but he was there. You wouldn't have seen it on the surface. Wouldn't have seen it on the surface. So vitality goes, and we welcome death. And... Uh, and we're, whether we like it or not, we're going to have to face this process, collectively as a culture, physically, or the little deaths we go through in everyday life. And we resist, you know. It's like Woody Allen saying, I don't mind dying. I don't mind dying. 
It's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> That's our problem. We don't want to be there when it happens. We all resist that. That's a miserable thing to die. But we're doing it every day. We did it last night when we went to bed and we woke up and we looked around and said, oh, not this again. <laughs> then we have to go get up and we have to restore ourselves and think of God and restore our minds and keep our minds open and, and, uh, and uh, receptive to the divine within us and thus carefully receptive to the world, you know, with wisdom. Then what comes to us is the most precious gift of all this strength. Strength. Vekananda taught that again and again and again. Religion is strength. You feel strong within yourself more and more. You feel self-confident. You can love. You can open up to the world. You are freer. You are more integrated. Who doesn't want that? See, that's the essence of it all. We go to universities, we go to schools, we study. We do, we do it for just one reason. We want to be strong. There's no other reason. Look at it. You want to be peaceful, loving, and free in everything that we do. And we do all these things, attempts in the world, and they're healthy. Because on the other side of it, we see our power and the capacity that we have. But ultimately, it boils down to spiritual strength. See? Strength, 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 as Vekananda tells us. So I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And um, lots of models of the dying process. Um, uh, <clears throat> one fascinating, rather common model is that at death, we see the great light. Now I'm going to go into this in a little more detail because it's a fascinating thing. You know, a common thing when we do die physically, we're looking at that now. We see a larger light, sometimes described as the end of a tunnel, but it's perceived as love and peace, and a healing light comes to uh, <coughs> probably everyone. But if they're, they're demonic in nature, probably they can't stay there for much, very, very, very long at all. They just recoil. They recoil away from the light, and they plunge back down into who they are until they're ready, the uh, light of the Atman, the light of Brahman, the light of God, of truth, they can't be receptive to it, you see. But anyway, there's that healing, healing presence at the end of the tunnel. Death is only the servant who opens the door when providence rings the bell and ushers you to a larger, into a larger building. That's all death does. Ramakrishna told Holy Mother, I think it was her, don't worry, I, I'm just, I just passed from one room into another. She was weeping a great deal, you know. Eventually he told her, I'm just in another room. Don't worry about it. Not a big deal. And uh, so it's like that. It's a very strange thing. We all just don't know about it. But Vekanan is the ultimate expression of it too. He just, he just was getting old, he was getting worn out. He was half blind, his heart was going, his kidneys and everything, because the man had taken on so much and brought in so much karma into his life. He never said that. He never accused anybody of ever, anything. His heart was always compassionate, loving, and open. There on his death, there when the day when he wanted to die, he just, as he said right afterwards, I think it was Swami Ramakrishna there in South India, he appeared before him in a vision and said, Brother, brother, I spat off the body. I spat off the body. Now there's a hero. See? He didn't whine and crawl and do all that, which, which, which many do, and others don't. They fall into a state of bliss. But he did it even more courageously. He just spat it off. It's no good anymore. 
Ramakrishna said he had that power. See. So these are these are the things that happen. But if we're not prepared, uh, if if we have strong likes and dislikes, strong fears and desires, then when we we experience the light, we can't fully rest in the divine. So this is one of the interesting things about the Tibetans and their bar dolls. Angelic regions surrounded by uh, heavenly power, empowered by the light. So we enter the larger building, so to speak, a larger experience of ourselves, yet in this larger experience, more freeing experience, because what we're doing is really attuning ourselves to the worlds that we visited before in previous lives, to our own special inclination, spiritual. And what we do is we're more aware, we're, we're open, Atman manifests more. So we're able to stay in a, in a realm which is conducive to who we are now, see, what we've developed. But you see, it's, it's a curious foul, a challenge that everybody experiences at this point in their life because uh, the Tibetan Buddhists tell us about these bardals or higher realms. Not that we ascend into it, but we, 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 we open out into it but then we pull away, we retract ourselves because the light is too bright. The peace, the freedom, the love, the caring is not what we're familiar with. <laughs> we have all this stuff inside of us, you see. And so we retract, we pull back, we withdraw. And what we do is seemingly descend because we're in a linear world. So we think it turns linear, way in linear ways we don't descend we just pull back into our own delusional world that we need to address and work in at the time so we pull back from the larger light we enter so with some embrace we come have some embrace as we first perceive it and merge with it some people can do that they can merge with the larger state of consciousness as milton john milton says death is a golden key that opens the palace of eternity some people can experience the light, stay there, rest with it, and then they die, and they either give what's called krama mukti. They get liberated, but they pass over burbhuvaswaha, and then there's the maha, the great place where you step over it, and then you can go into the higher realms after death, and, uh, and you don't have to come back to the world. But in any case, it's that uh, death is the golden key that opens the palace of eternity. So we embrace the larger experience and gain our immortality. On the other hand, we may find this place of eternity too strong, too unfamiliar, this higher state of consciousness, this expanded presence, this grand peace, this loving openness see, of light, too strong, too unfamiliar for our experience too expansive for our contracted ways. See, we're contracted of loving and living and reacting. So our mind, like, like a very cruel person, will do it very quickly. We, of course, see it, but what we do is we descend down quietly into realms that are more comfortable. So our mind instinctively pulls away from this expansive experience. It shuts down, as it were, because the larger light, again, is too painful. It's not, see, that's why spiritual life is a gradual process for all of us. It's too painful, the light. We don't really want to rest in it. We have other things to do. 
We have other things to do. And that's quite all right. We have to go through our experiences as we let go of them. This is the process. It's a very healthy process. That's what Maya is made of. So we made of. So we don't have to judge her. It's not a question of judging. It's too it's too much at first. So we pull back. We descend. More clouded, more dense, more opaque expressions of the light. Things that we're familiar with. We go to heaven realms that are very beautiful and uplifting and ennobling, but they're not freedom. They're the realm of the gods, of the fathers. And, uh, <clears throat> and we get more and more comfortable until we find the place where we want to be. So there's a very simple process that we're experiencing every day. We just don't know it. We're experiencing the light of consciousness, higher awareness, but we're pulling away from it and living our lives in a, in a more dense, opaque world. See? Our minds do that. Well, <clears throat> Mother Teresa dies, you see. <clears throat> it's about our divine birthing. That's what we're talking about today. Mother Teresa dies and goes to heaven. God greets her at the early gates. And God says to Mother Teresa, he says, are you hungry? And she, uh, Mother Teresa, and she says, I could eat, yeah, I could eat. So God opens a can of tuna and reaches for a chunk of rye bread and they share it. Now they're in heaven, see, it's a blissful place, I guess. Anyway, while eating this humble meal, Mother Teresa looks down into hell and sees the inhabitants devouring huge steaks lobsters, pheasants, pastries, and wines. Curious, but deeply trusting, she remains quiet. The next day, God again invites her to join him for a meal. Again, it is tuna and rye bread. Once again, Teresa, Mother Teresa can see the denizens of hell enjoying caviar, champagne, lamb, truffles, and chocolates. Still, she says nothing. The following day, Mealtime arrives, and another can of tuna is opened. <laughs> she can't contain herself. Meekly, she says to God, Oh, God, I am grateful to be in heaven with you. <laughs> you are as a reward for the pious, obedient life I have led. Who says, uh, But here in heaven, I, all I get to eat is tuna and a piece of rye bread. And in the other place, they eat like emperors and kings. He says, I don't understand. God sighs. He says, let's be honest. He says, for just two people, does it pay to cook? Let's go to hell. <laughs> well, the mind contracts. <laughs> it doesn't want to be up there in heaven with tuna fish and rye bread. It's not fun up there. We want to go to where we're familiar. So it's too bright, too expansive and inclusive. We feel compelled to descend to reach our more distracted world until we find expressions of the light that don't overwhelm us. So we can feast and enjoy as we we're doing here on earth to some degree. So the mind concretizes. Okay, that's one expression in death and dying of the body. But then we have a death and dying that occurs in the collective. 
It's a corresponding collective social death and dying. <clears throat> Let me do one thing. I forgot to do a very important thing at the beginning of this, but it's very important to set the model throughout as well, Vekananda. When Vekananda says, uh, talks about this, he always did this in a very brilliant way, of course, and he said, the little separate self must die. Then we shall find that we are the real, and that reality is God, and he is our own true nature, and he is always in us and with us. See, it's always an infilling, an opening up, an aha, expressing our potential more and more. So he says, let us live in him and stand in him. It is the only joyful state of existence. Life on the plane of the spirit is the only life, and let us all try to attain to this realization. That's what he says about this as we develop these other ideas. I didn't go to this. And a simple process, there's a cool school in modernity today called structuralism. And it's all these people, <clears throat> they're a bunch of names, but I'm just choosing one, Jane Lovinger. The point is, you see, they find that the mind opens up. It's a death and dying process, but it's a divine birth going on, we would say. It moves from little realizations to larger realizations. And that's what we're talking about throughout this book, this lecture, the talk, is we get into a realization that is uh, our ordinary ones and we're not able to touch the larger one and open out into it and rest in it. So she talks about this I and how it matures from a brief conventional state. And I don't want to overwhelm you. It's not very difficult at all, really. A more contracted state is children. We're impulsive and self-protective, you see, and... and uh, and uh, uh, very self-absorbed. Conventional state, our mind opens up. We become more responsive to the world. We realize we're in communities. So we live in communities, and we're more conformist, and then we become a little self-aware in these larger communities of the world that we live in. And then we re reach out in conscientious ways, and we're able to touch and respond to people and love and care about them and see their problems, see how our mind tends to evolve. And the third state is post-conventional, post where we become individuals. We become individuals. We see that I am distinct from the collective. I don't have to live through the collective. I find within me self-worth and strength. And it's in that self-worth and strength that, that, that I live my life now. And then I become autonomous, more integrated, more self. But what we're seeing here is the opening of consciousness, the adaptation to the divine within and the, the freeing up of illusions and delusions of the mind as we become more and more aware and self-possessed and ultimately integrated. So we transcend all conflicts and we're, we're, we're resting in our self-identity. She talks about it as I integrated. We say that we've reached a state of higher realization and we're resting in the divine. So, uh, so this this is how I wanted to introduce the thing. I forgot to introduce those two ideas into it. But you see where we're going, because Vekananda always speaks about evolution, the evolution of nature, the evolution of mind. And all I'm doing is interjecting into this process this idea of divine birth, because that's all it's doing, happening, is that we're, being, we're birthing this divinity more and more. We don't know it. Nobody knows it. All they know is that on the other side of every effort to grow, they get stronger. They're more competent. They're more self-possessed, you know, more integrated. So the collective, we've taken the individual, 
corresponding collective social death and dying. It happens all the time. Now in the world, we're going through collective deaths of societies. We're trying to reorient and rediscover ourselves in the world in light of a community of people who see the world in a new way. We're being compelled to do this. So if a society grows, uh, there are just vast collections of individuals, see? And that's important to remember. So there's a death and dying of the collective that goes on. And we're going through that even today, as I say. As the world becomes one, there's a collective death and dying as everybody is trying to reformulate their minds in light of the collective. Global economy, global world. You see global structures, infrastructures. The whole thing is new to everyone. And all of these old systems of thought are trying, trying to adapt to this new collective and rebirth of the collective. And history is filled with the ruins of the past, of death and dying. Look back in history and we could see where cultures rise and die. Ancient Greece, Rome, Constantinople, Asia Minor, Asia Minor Ottoman Empire, ancient Persia, China, and all, and if we look at India, India has gone through all sorts of death and dying as it's resurrected itself through different stages of evolution. But it goes this way, people from foraging and hunting and townships, their mind opens up collectively now. We're seeing a collective death and then a resurrection going on, a divine birth. So from foraging, hunting in the woods and things like that, they come together in greater love. They find reassurance with one another, as we do as communities. So it moves into horticultural societies and the worship of the gods and paganism. See, we have, I have my family and my community, and I don't like your community and your family. We have our own shields, we have our own symbols, we have our own things that represent us, and it's not you and we don't like you, you see, because we're, we're of a certain clan or whatever it may be. This goes on in every country in one form or other, and yet people are compelled to open up, and then suddenly there's a, a it moves into a, a, a mythic stage, where everybody starts embracing a new symbol, and there's a birth, a rebirth going on, where we're no longer fighting one, in, one another. Actually, we love one another, we're trying to. And the family in this filial notion of self-identity dies to a larger birth, community, a larger community. And that's what we're going through now, you see. And into modernity, justice, freedom, equality of the collective. There's new, this new sense born, especially here in America, 1776, this idea of the equality and freedom and independence and justice for the individual. This is awesome stuff because it moved away from the authority of the church and the myth. So you see, the myth had spoken to these collective clans of people who were tribes. And the myth said, no, you don't have to do that. Christ saves all of us, and Christ loves us. And there was a power in that. The people readapted their minds and readjusted their minds. Said, yes, I don't have to fight Harry over the hill. I'm tired of going over there and can't move around and everything. But Harry is accepting Christ. What's that about? So he accepted Christ. Now, this happens everywhere, in every culture. Just giving an example here. And so eventually they found a new bond, and he could go over the hill, and Harry wouldn't hurt him, and he wouldn't hurt Harry, see. And they could shake hands, and they had a new vision, a new referent point by which they could love, and that was Christ. 
So it opened society up and the civilization became a new kind of thing and people regrouped their minds. They reevaluated their lives in new ways and new knowledge came. A whole new world started to emerge. Eventually it broke away and you had your Renaissance and then you had your Reformations and you had your Enlightenment periods and it all started breaking away even from the grand myth. The myth started to die because it no longer had the vitality, the intellectual vitality that it had at a time in history where it worked. God created everything. Oh yes, God did create everything. Now that's in question because of science. What we say in Vedanta and what Vekananda, the modern prophet, tells us is we created it out of ourselves. The Purusha, the self itself, is evolving nature. We don't have to go to a creator god up there. Brahman and Shakti, the Shakti is adjusting. It's a whole science in itself. It is adjusting as it evolves, but it's all from within. So that's the new message now. Same unification, a new level. Now with the death and dying, of the world, out of the mythic world, we have a new message given by Ramakrishna and Vekananda, and that message is keep your heart open to everything. It's not just Christ that's unifying, Krishna is unifying, Allah is unifying, open your heart to all. And that's an awesome thing what Ramakrishna did. See, that's an awesome thing. And Vekananda's heart, as he re-identified the world, the global world, that's dying now, and there's a re divine rebirth taking place, but it's going to come as individuation. Collective things are nice. I was reading that Jane Lovinger. Collectively, we all adjust and adapt, and we all love each other in names of Christ, or in name of Krishna, or in name of the Divine Mother, or whatever. But it's, it's limited. Boom, suddenly we're in the postmodern world. There are no boundaries anymore. It's a global community. What do we do with all these people? I don't like them. Just like in the old days, they didn't like each other out of their little tribes. I don't like the people of the world. I want to be who I am. I'm a Christian fundamentalist or something which I admire, by the way. I think it's a necessary phase for many people and stabilizing America now in its utter confusion it's passing through. Because these people aren't mean people. They're just, they, they have to hold on to some reassurance someplace. And through Christ, they've learned that there is a source there. But we have moved on now, the world is moving on, and everybody's going to have to quietly let go and find a new model. And that's where real answers and capacities arise to embrace the larger message of the prophet. See, So India did it again, the Greeks did it again, again birthing in the society. And they absorbed the Christ power, Asia, Buddha, enlightenment, he brought together all these warring thinkers and all this stuff and reestablished something for the time that worked, see? Until the Vedic area came, restored itself with Shankaracharya and he pushed that out and restored a new model for India that was unifying. They always do it that way. It's always a larger unity. Vekanata talks about this. The mind moves through larger unities. Look at your own life. It does just that. Nothing more. So. A new method, a new dis injunctions, directives, methodologies for the collective so that there's a collective resurrection that occurs. Vekananda said, this is the last time this is going to happen, a new religion. Vedic spirituality is not a religion per se. It's just the laws of spirituality. 
You don't have to do anything with it. I mean, you don't have to add to it. What I'm saying is very universal. And it allows total freedom. So he said, really, this is never going to happen again, a new religion. What's going to happen are prophets and saints and sages are going to rise up in this religion, world, universal, all-accepting religion, as it's happened in India. Now it's going to have to be a global affair. So when I often speak and say, we've got to move this out of Hinduism into the globe, a lot of people think I'm against Hinduism. I love Hinduism. It's awesome. Okay? It's beautiful. But you've got to get it out of a collective cultural thing into a world event. And you can only do that by stepping out of any collective that is historical and, and resting in history and traditions. You can't do it anymore. The world won't allow it. It will not allow it. It needs laws and principles and teachings that include all of us on our terms. I am who I am. Don't you try to change me in any way. But really, the Vekananda's message in Ramakrishna, Absolutely. Not only do we agree, we affirm it. We say that's exactly the way we feel. It's another animal. It's a whole new thing. A whole new thing. So it's very important that this becomes a global process. That's, that's all I ever talk about. Taking it from, from a, a, a regional a model into a global model and holding it there. If we're Native American, we should be able to affirm our Native. I say that because I think of how the Native American uh, culture in this country has been hurt so deeply. See? They have to understand that they have a vital contribution to the world. We're not here to destroy. We're here. Christ said, I come to, to heal. And I, can't, I come to, what was it? I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. An age needs its fulfillment. Vivekananda, Ramakrishna, Holy Mother, if we look at them in the larger context, global context, they've come to fulfill that. We can't hold it regionally, cannot do it. The world will go crazy and it will fight and pull it out of anybody's hands who wants to hold it regionally and put it in theirs because they're too good. Ramakrishna, Vivekananda, see, and the Divine Mother. This is a very excellent model. But the world will not allow it to be confined. The world cannot be confined by anybody in the culture anymore. Can't do it. Try to do that, and we're hurting ourselves and the world. So receive the larger light. As the society is able to do that, it changes. Prophets, incarnations. This is the death and resurrection of, of the light in a social sense. The host culture, and in this case, the host culture, uh, which is the whole globe, accepts the new model. Individuals begun to rise to the new challenge and embrace the new, more relevant model. Oh, I can remain a Christian. I can remain a Jew. I can remain a Hindu. I can remain a Muslim, and yet reach out in loving arms to other people, just as those tribal people reached out through Christ to a larger model. Now I could do it again. No bondage, no boundaries here. You see, that was their message, and that's why it is so stunning, so stunning. But they took it back to source. And that source can be explained again and again in different ways, this Vedanta. That is the stunning thing. That's why it's global, global in its embrace, relevant for the globe. Collective creativity is going to emerge. That's why I'm frustrated at times. Because I know there's, waiting in the wings is an enormous explosion of collective creativity. 
Don't go on. People will go bananas over this. <laughs> They'll love it. Because it speaks to them all. Suddenly the heart is released again, once again. Not into Christ, not into Krishna or anything, but into the ultimate divine truth that resides within everything. Ah, oh, thank God. You know, we tell the con con conservative Christians, you don't have to worry, brother. Carry on with Christ. Love him. He is there. We don't say he's not there. He's there in the subtle plane. He will help you. You can form a bond with him. The angels exist. All this exists. We don't touch anything at all. All we say is know globally that this process of the divine works within anything and every religion. Then go on doing what you're doing with enthusiasm, but with a new state of mind. You're no longer fighting others. See? You're no longer resisting a global mentality. You're now free. Free to do what you want to do and in a new bonded bond with other religions. With the Catholic Church, oh Protestants, now you can reach out into the Catholic Church and they can reach out to you. And you can reach out to the Muslims. Muslims can reach out to you. It's a, going to be a radical change as we see. Very radical. But it has to happen because Vivekananda is the prophet of the age. Go to his stuff and read him. And, uh, and, and you'll see there's prophetic power there. A lot of people say, oh, he read, he read Spinoza and, and he read all sorts of German philosophers and took his ideas from them. I noticed that. You go to Vekananda and he took all of his ideas from the early German Enlightenment period, many of them. He just read them and he had a phenomenal mind. He took it up and he was able to regurgitate it, a lot of it. But what's distinctive about this man, Vekananda, is that he's a prophet. The, the Germans could not lift up their society with these ideas. Vekananda has the voice, the power, the presence to lift up a whole, whole globe. He's a prophet. Prophets are another. So yeah, he could quote from these people, and he could use their ideas, and he did. And oh, that means he's just, no, no, not at all. He used what was there, but with his prophetic power and his magnitude of the personality, he will change the, the, the culture. We, we were always hiding out. We needn't hide out, hide out with Vedanta, nor with who Vekananda was. Or he, he was pre-Einstein. He was pre-Freud. He didn't get it all straight. But he didn't, he always left it open-ended. <clears throat> Vekananda never, never shut the doors to anything. He left, he gave the truth, and it was all gold, and it repeats itself, but it wasn't finished. <clears throat> he said, I'm not finished. This has to be worked out. So it has to be worked out by the world, and that's where I come in in my frustration, because I could see I'd love to mix with people who are heartfelt and enthusiastic about this in a way that is transforming for America, for Europe, for the whole world is going down the tubes. Let's face it. Economics and all these things, all of this stuff can be traced back to selfishness. Vekinanda said, as he did it with everything, he'd give formulas, quick ones. He had no time to talk nonsense. So he repeated himself again and again. One of his great formulas was, no privilege for anybody. Privilege is the evil beast. Okay. No privilege. I'm touching this thing. It's probably going to come up in the lecture. People are going to be. No privilege for anyone. You could be wealthy. You can have power. You can move in wonderful circles. You can have powerful friends. You can have boats and yachts and your own personal planes. Do whatever you want, but no privilege. 
Now that's something the world's going to have to look at in the new religion because it's gotten out of control. The whole thing has become totally abusive. So the genius of Vivekananda again and again comes through. Yeah, he took from others. Yeah, he was pre-Freud, pre-Einstein, pre-this, pre-that. It's fine. He's a prophet. You can't stop these people. Christ, he was pre-everything <laughs> at that time. And yet he's still Jesus the Christ. Okay. So the individual brings us up to this now, to us, the last expression of divine birth through death and dying. Our everyday concrete life, pain, suffering, the little slights, our overcharged credit cards, our lost keys, our mortgages and relationships, it wears thin. We all know it wears thin. We need community. That's another point I make here. We'll get this thing to open up, Vedanta. It has to. It's no question of should we, should we not. This thing has to have an open heart because that's the message. So that people from this civilization could find restoration. You've got to make places very big for the age. Very, Ramakrishna is always at the center, by the way. People misunderstand me all the time. Ramakrishna has to be at the center, not because he's Ramakrishna. No, 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 no. Well, Christ was at the center, not because he was Jesus Christ. No, no. They're there because their hearts are exceptionally open to the age. And their hearts speak, and they're of prophetic power, and they're of incarnational power. That's why. Now, Ramakrishna, he, uh, he, he is much bigger than anyone seems to understand, as far as I could see. I may be a crazy spokesman but I doubt it. You need in Ramakrishna, he, he affirms globality, a global, modern, postmodern world. He affirms it. He doesn't say, ooh, they're the bad guys over there, and we should, he never did that. He never did that. Vekananda was always stunned and amazed at Ramakrishna, and he had to learn that truth himself, that Ramakrishna was his master in the sense that Ramakrishna never criticized anything. He said, I never saw that man criticize anything. Tantra, they're doing all sorts of weird, strange stuff. Ramakrishna says, well, maybe there's a backdoor to everything. You know? He knew, Ramakrishna knew, don't touch this. It's unfolding. Just give it, allow it, and restore. And then he said, this boy will teach Vekananda. So he comes and he teaches, and he has this wonderful message. So my idea, my passion is to see this thing open up globally, open it up to everything, not as a resistance to who Ramakrishna is. Ooh. No, because he's not an ooh. He is love. He is harmony. You come and step into his world and you're free on a new level. Free on a new level. Freedom, freedom. You know, oh freedom. Who was it? Uh, uh, you know, Martin Luther King, see. That human hunger for freedom. But it's a new freedom. We can embrace, embrace the Muslims. We can embrace the this, the that, the Christians and the Muslims and the Jews and the and this and that and all these ancient nonsensical divisions that exist. See, It all melts down when you go into a temple where everything is represented, honored, every heart can stay open. And this man, Ramakrishna, is there. He's got to be there. You can't just do it on our own. We're going to make a universal religion. They're trying that. We've been doing that in America for a long time and we fail at it. No, you've got to get a prototype, a man who says yes, and you've got to read his life, and it's got to be interpreted for Westerns as well. 
So you could see that, oh my God, he actually went into an altered state, an open awareness, and he would embrace everything in that awareness. Awareness is divine. Your awareness is what your Atman is. Ramakrishna, in this larger awareness, he allowed Christ into his life. He allowed Allah into his life and, and Muhammad. He allowed any higher religion into his life and he would test it. Does this take me up into the higher state? Yeah, it works. By Jove, I've gone into Nirvakapa Samadhi. <laughs> he affirms it again and again and again. Now this is all I believe in. This is all I can affirm in my life. Anything else, I don't touch. Anything else, I find my mind is being contracted and I will fight, ultimately, and the world will fight once it catches this. Fight only in that I won't submit to anything smaller. I won't. This is what I learned from these people and India. And India has to understand it has a very global message. It's not confined. India's message is no longer confined to India. They have to, India has to rise to the occasion and be global, universal in the true sense of the world. And America is very good at this too. So I don't know who's going to get to the finish line first. <laughs> India has done it again and again and again. But what we have is a crazy bunch of Americans. And Americans are not one race, by the way. We're a mixture. We're, the, 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 the end line there that we're all running towards is freedom and a new religion for the world. And uh, somebody's going to take, I think it's going to be a play between India and America interacting, but India's going to have to give us space to do this and understand that we're working with them, not against them. But they're going to have to open their hearts too and be flexible and open as well so that they're going to see themselves in a new light as Ramakrishna teaches it. Ramakrishna is the property of the world. He's just too big. Vekananda made it clear to us he's our brother when he came to this country. I mean, he told us that, and, and he is that. Any American who's born here knows it. Instinctively, you read the man, and you say, my God, he's a brother. And he embraced the, 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 the Hale family as his parents. So when he left California, and he, he, he went, left California in this... 1900 lecture circuit he went on went back he, he stopped as I understand it in Chicago stayed with the Hale family they were his parents here in the country he was like a, he was a boy he was a child and he found these people to be very noble and great and there must have been a lot of tears a lot of sadness there because he knew he was going to go back to India and die see we got to understand this thing is much bigger than we see right now and stop holding, well, anyway, be generous. We've got to be generous. We have no choice. We have no choice. All right. I was going to give the whole idea of death and dying according to Nachiketas and his relationship with the, the, the dying process or the God of death, but I'm not going to do that because we've run out of time. So, let me read... <laughs> quite a long lecture here varying expressions of the one All we've tried to look at here are the varying expressions of the one and how we as individuals have to embrace this new religion how with death and dying we go through this experience of resurrection and the divine light and how cultures are doing it as well it's going on all these levels and the most important for us now is to embrace it as individuals and growing as a people, a community 
of people who love the light in a new form, a new form of openness and acceptance and embrace, where we really, really rejoice in the wisdom of other religions, really rejoice in it, you see? Instead of isolate ourselves according to the old traditions of the medieval world. We're moving out of the medieval world. We have no choice. So Vekananda, quote, infinitely smaller than the smallest, infinitely larger than the largest. Very small in our lives when we turn to the divine. But yet when our awareness starts opening up, we find that, that there's a, a factor in our life that is very expansive. Infinitely larger than the largest, the Lord is present in the depth of every human heart. The sinless. Sinless doesn't mean that you're a good person. It doesn't mean any nonsense of piety. It means just that you walk in life with a moral sense of love and caring and openness and without any self-hatred. Work out your karma. It's not a big deal. You're not special. You have problems. You look in your heart and you see you're a bad person. Who cares? Who cares? Just don't go around killing people. And uh, you, you, you'll work it out. So the Lord is present in every heart. The sinless, bereft of all misery, see him through the mercy of the Lord. We have to do that Lord thing, the God thing, and it's a very healthy thing, and it's a process of turning over to larger powers. Eventually, we realize we don't have to go anywhere. Don't have to go anywhere. You are that. Thou art that. But the illusions have to fall away. The illusions that somehow were separate from the divine. See him through the mercy of the Lord. The bodiless, yet dwelling in the body. The spaceless, yet seemingly to occupy space. Infinite and omnipresent, knowing the soul to be such. The sages are never miserable. 